on a spreadsheet, for sure, wind and solar are definitely competitive with the gas plant, but there are still significant issues of availability, which California saw three weeks ago when the sun went down and the solar plants didn't run and the lights literally went out. They did forced rolling blackouts. From our remote offices in the New York tri-state area, welcome to No More, Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. This podcast offers conversations with our analysts to get their perspective and expertise on the global credit markets. If you're an investment professional that touches the wide universe of fixed income, you will want to give us a listen. We are living a surreal life right now, but our team of nearly 100 analysts continues to publish content to more than 15,000 readers across global credit markets. I'm Chris Snow, the moderator, and I'm here with Andy DeVries, co-head of investment grade research in the U.S., senior analyst utilities. Hi, Andy. Welcome. Hi, Chris. Well, Andy, it's great to have you back. We've had several conversations recently about utilities, the PACAS exit from bankruptcy with Charlotta Chung, our legal analyst, Warren Buffett's purchase of Dominion, a conversation you had with Aaron Lyons. And now we're going to spend some time on a topic that has been of great interest to our clients, which is green energy. Before we get into it, though, I know you have two stats that you want our listeners to take away from this podcast. So go ahead. Thanks, Chris. 20 and 22 are the two stats. 20% of the nation's power needs currently come from renewables, and the U.S. spent $22 billion bringing new wind and solar online in 2019. Thanks. We'll share some context on those as we get through the podcast. As I mentioned, there's no shortage of headlines in clean energy, AOC's Green New Deal. You've had Biden's clean energy plan, which was actually topic number one in the Biden-Sanders compact that came out in early July. Solar ETFs rising 85% year to date. California's power outages a few weeks ago, global warming, hurricanes. And of course, we've had Uber speak this week that they plan to have a all-electric fleet by 2030. Can you put some perspective on it as it relates to the current power markets and where we in the U.S. get our power from? Sure, Chris. In big picture terms, the U.S. has an installed capacity base of around 1,100 gigawatts against peak demand of around 750 gigawatts, with the balance being reserves in case plants go down or can't run, as California saw a few weeks ago. Instead of installed capacity, which includes plants that barely run and get paid more for not running than actually running, analysts look at actual megawatt hours produced. So on this front, natural gas plants are far and away the biggest source of our nation's power at 38%. This is followed by coal at 23%, which is down from around 40% 10 years ago. Then nuclear comes in at 20%. So coal, gas, and nuclear combined are around 80% of the nation's power. And that hasn't changed much at all in the last 10 years as gas has replaced coal and nuclear state constant. On the renewables front, hydro, wind, and solar are around 20%, with hydro losing market share to rapidly growing wind and solar. But obviously, that rapid wind and solar growth is coming from a very, very small starting point. So if we look at coal, which is sort of uh, a top enemy in the energy space, it's gone from 40% of our nation's power to you know, close to 20%. When does it get to zero? Does it ever get to zero? Well, it's definitely going lower for sure, given how big coal mining is. But given how big coal mining is to states like West Virginia and Wyoming, I'm not sure we get to zero, but certainly under 10% is achievable. It's also somewhat funny, Chris, Trump tried to bail out the coal plants when he took office, but their market share has just kept falling and retirement announcements have actually accelerated under his watch. These coal plants, they just can't compete against natural gas plants. At $2.50 natural gas, and $3 O&M costs, new gas plants can produce power for around $20 a megawatt hour, 
versus 30 to 40 dollars for coal and nuclear plants. We're tracking the nation's largest 50 coal plants for retirement announcements. These 50 of the largest coal plants out there make up half of the nation's coal power or around 10% of the nation's power. That's for 2019. 40% of them already have retirement plans in place, and we expect more to come, although some of those retirement plans are not for another 10 years or so. Well, that leads into discussion on renewables. You know, what's driving the growth rates there? Sure. So there's three drivers behind the rapid growth of wind and solar, but obviously coming from a very small starting point. The first is technology, the second is falling costs, and the third is customer demand. On this last point, that customer demand can be because a regulator or legislature mandated a utility procure a certain amount of renewable power, as we've seen in Michigan, California, New Jersey, New York, and many other states, or just a company wanting to hit its own CO2 targets on its own. So these CO2 goals have moved from the cash-heavy tech companies, plenty of money to spend like Google and Facebook, which have pledged to go 100% clean that power. It's moved to the more mainstream companies like GM, Home Depot, and others that have also announced clean energy targets. And if you're Home Depot with fairly minimal power needs, it's a pretty easy commitment. If you're Google or Facebook with dozens and dozens of power-hungry data centers, or GM with heavily automated factories, these are real sources of real significant new clean energy demand. And then on the technology front, you know, it's pretty simple on the wind side. Wind turbines get taller and taller because the wind blows the higher and higher you get. These new six megawatt turbines Dominion and others have recently installed, they're over the length of a football field in diameter. They're now able to rotate onshore wind turbines, so they're constantly facing the wind, and that maximizes output. It gets the capacity factor up to the 40% range, versus the smaller ones that are fixed closer to 20-30% range. For solar, it's just a simple game of technology that allows you to get more and more output from the same square footage of panels. Contrary to popular belief, Elon Musk's solar roof is unfortunately still not commercially available as they look pretty amazing, those panels. Uh, on the cost front, wind turbine costs have fallen from around 2,000 to KW of installed capacity five years ago to around 1,400 currently. The U.S. added 9 gigawatts of wind in 2019, and we're now up to 110 gigawatts of wind. And again, that capacity factor of these new turbines is up to the low 40% range, but for overall, including the old ones, you're around 20 25%. Solar costs have also fallen, but to a lesser degree as wind. Solar costs now for new ones around 1,200 to KW. We added 13 gigawatts of solar last year, and we now have 78 gigawatts of solar in the United States. So combined, we spent 22 billion. There's that big statistic I mentioned earlier. The U.S. spent 22 billion on wind and solar in the U.S. last year, and Goldman Sachs said on one of their recent webcasts that 2021 will be the first year where renewable and clean energy capex exceeds oil and gas capex, which is a pretty amazing statistic you would have never believed just a couple of years ago. To translate these dollar per KW for installed capacities to actual megawatt hours, Nextera Energy is the world's largest owner of renewables, and they say that in two years, wind will be down to $20 a megawatt hour and solar will be around $30 a megawatt hour. Well, let's talk about how parties can manipulate that data. There's plenty of skeptics that are out there. What are you seeing? Yeah, so first off, are the figures variable costs or do they have an assumption of fixed costs spread over the life of the project, i.e. do they include depreciation? Are parties comparing a new solar plant to a new gas plant or to a gas plant that's already up and running and has low O&M costs? You can easily manipulate the data there. 
Secondly, all these levelized cost of energy studies, with Lazard's being the de facto one used by most people, have an embedded natural gas cost. So if you want to make renewables more advantageous, you just raise your natural gas price assumption. The coal and nuclear crowd did exactly this 10 years ago, and the residents of South Carolina and Georgia are paying the price for that and will be paying the price for that for decades for their nuclear plants. The one in South Carolina never even came online. So some of the renewables crowd are doing this today. Also, the natural gas market in the U.S. is currently around 90 BCF a day, with just over a third of that for power generation. If the renewable crowd is correct, you're going to see some of that natural gas lose market share to renewables, which will lower the demand for natural gas. So if that natural gas generation goes away, it's pretty safe to say the natural gas prices would fall, which would then restore some of the economic advantage of those gas plants. We spent a lot of time looking at this, Chris. Finally, anyone constructing a new solar plant today gets 20% of the total cost back from the federal government. That's down from 30% a couple of years ago. That's the investment tax credit. Anybody constructing a wind farm today gets $15 a megawatt hour for the first 10 years it is in operation, also from the federal government. That's down from the mid $20 range a few years ago. Uh, that's the production tax credit. So we see a lot of this green versus gas assumptions that include tax credits being extended, even though they're scheduled to sunset right now. Interestingly, the sunsetting of both of those tax credits were put in place under a very pro-clean energy Obama administration. But both the wind and solar lobbies are, are trying to get those back if Biden gets elected. It's very interesting, Chris, that NextEra, who we already said is the world's largest owner of wind and solar, they say they do not believe wind and solar should get those tax credits extended. And we somewhat wonder if that's not so they can keep the competition down so they can keep getting the lion's share of these new contracts. Yeah, there's no shortage of existing parties trying to get a regulatory mode. I, I guess we just sort of dig into that a bit. You know, you have embedded assumptions. And of course, as you spoke about, there's knock on impacts of, of natural gas prices. And, and that complicates about whether or not this green energy is, is really truly economic. But on net, if we exclude those subsidies, whether they're federal, whether they're state, and then we make an assumption that, you know, there, there, there could be lower natural gas prices, does green energy break even or will this continue to be policy driven? It's a great question. And on a spreadsheet, for sure, wind and solar are definitely competitive with a gas plant, but there are still significant issues of availability, which California saw three weeks ago when the sun went down and the solar plants didn't run and the lights literally went out. They did forced rolling blackouts. So here at Credit Sites and the power team, we're spending a lot of time on battery storage and the emerging new storage technology of green hydrogen. Green hydrogen entails taking excess wind and solar power when it's not needed, i.e. when the power is free, and you power an electrolyzer to produce hydrogen, which can then be burned in a gas plant without any CO2 emissions to produce power. Nextera says we're five to 10 years away from that process being commercially viable, but they hope to get a pilot project announced before the end of the year. But as we saw with wind and solar, if you have regulators force utilities to start using it, the costs start coming down significantly as it scales up. We could do an entire podcast on energy storage, and Nick and I listened to quite a few of them. But to answer your question, to produce a megawatt hour of power, yes, unsubsidized wind and solar are economical versus a gas plant. To produce it when it is needed most in those evening hours, when people come home from work and school and start turning on lights and appliances, you need to add storage, and that isn't economic yet.
Gotcha. So you're still fairly constructive or, or, or dare I say uh, bullish on wind and solar growth continuing? A hundred percent. Absolutely. You know, the renewables train has left the station and if Trump couldn't slow it down, nobody's going to be able to. And then, you know, obviously they have costs here. And I think that, you know, as we'll get into a little bit later, you know, as utilities make these investments, ratepayers can, you know, this actually you know, shows up in their bills in one form or another. You know, how much are retail customers already bearing the cost from these investments and transitions to more green energy? How much is there to come? And, and you know, is there a point when there's customer fatigue? That, that's a great question. Utility customers in many states have subsidized many, many above market purchases of renewables. And you remember on our earlier podcast on the Pacific Gas and Electric bankruptcy, PacGas was on the hook for over $30 billion of power purchase agreements. That was disclosed when they filed bankruptcy. We calculated around 15 billion of that was well above market. Uh, Warren Buffett, Clearway Energy, NextEra, and many others have solar farms getting over $150 a megawatt hour for power. Dominion just built an offshore project in Virginia, also getting financed by ratepayers. That's also well above market. And these prices compare to current wind and solar deals of the Facebooks and Googles of the world, obviously not subsidized, at $30, $40 a megawatt hour. So the customers are, you could argue, overpaying for some power but it's a very small portion of the overall customer bill. And as I said earlier, getting these early projects up and running paves the way for cost curves to start coming down significantly. So there is a long-term customer benefit. It's just harder to quantify. Thanks. If I take a detour for a sec, you know, we can't have a conversation on corporate credit without talking to coronavirus. You know, we've seen in the economy upended manufacturing, supply chains, and user demand. You know, some of these have stabilized in certain areas. You know, what has been the impact on utilities? Sure. So in March, April, like many other sectors, it was a very big deal. Utilities were reporting 20 to 40% declines in commercial and industrial loads in some of those regions. But for most of them, you're down to a 10 to 20% decline for commercial and industrial customers, some of them a lot less, obviously some worse like New York City. But this is offset by mid-single-digit increases in residential customers as customers work from home and school from home. And those residential customers are much higher margin customers. So a mid-single-digit increase for residential customers offsets a 10 20% decline in the CNI customers. So overall, not a big impact to utilities. We're tracking 2020 and 21 EPS estimates and just not seeing an impact from coronavirus. And Andy, you and I have spoken about, if you look at employment trends, utilities is the least affected sector in, in terms of the impacts of the coronavirus. We have a big event coming up this fall, which is the election here in the U.S. Let's talk about Biden. And you know, if you look at where polling data and some of the betting markets are going, there's a plausible case that there's a Biden victory. You know, what is he campaigning on and what do you think is realistically going to happen? Sure. We obviously get that question a lot and spend a lot of time on it. Uh, a lot obviously hinges on if the Democrats take the Senate or not. But we know we've already seen bipartisan support to extend the investment tax credit for solar and production tax credit for wind in the past. One of the COVID stimulus acts delayed the sunsetting of some of those deadlines. Uh, so based on what we see in our trade pubs, one of the first things Biden will target is reestablishing those tax credits for renewables. His formal plan, which was announced in early July, is to spend $2 trillion getting the whole country to net zero CO2 by 2050. And his team has a pretty broad roadmark of where this spending is going to go. But it does include nuclear plants. 
And that's opposed to some of the others in his party, like the original AOC's Green New Deal that was very anti-nuclear. So including nuclear is great. It benefits the non-utility names like NRG and Vistra. And then in the utility sector, Exelon and public service benefit from that. Uh, a large component of the Biden plan and all Green New Deals is electrifying the transportation grid. If you go back 10 years ago, the generation sector was the largest source of CO2 emissions, but owing to all those coal plant retirements we talked about earlier, right now the largest source of CO2 emissions in the country is the transportation network. So he has a big plan to electrify the transportation network through cars, light trucks, government fleets, buses, the whole sector. Well, the electric vehicles sound great for the utility sector in terms of growth, you know, potentially increased demand. And, and certainly we're seeing otherwise fairly stable trends in terms of customer electricity demand. But you've written about in the past two positives and one risk from a Green New Deal. Can you flush out what those are? Sure. We've written that report several times. We keep updating it. Just big picture here. The first positive is rate-based renewables and the transmission and distribution, T&D, to bring it all to market. So all the spending leads to more rate-based growth, which boosts the EPS targets of the utility sector, which is generally targeting 5 to 7% EPS growth. It takes pressure off these management teams to sacrifice the balance sheet in any way. And then it resets asset coverage higher for bondholders. And all this rate-based spending is already occurring. The utility sector as a whole is forecasting, or EEI, which is the lobby group for the utility sector, is forecasting utility capex of $140 billion this year. That's up from $100 billion six years ago and $75 billion 10 years ago. So again, $140 billion in capex this year, up from $75 billion 10 years ago. It's done with minimal impact on customer bills, and this is key because the T&D is only half the bill. The other half is generation, and that's falling with gas prices. So the overall impact on bills isn't that significant. So that's great. That's one of the one positives from more T&D spending. The other second positive from a Biden presidency is electric vehicles and the related charging infrastructure. Bloomberg New Energy Finance has the widely held stat here. If 30% of new cars sold in 2030 are electric, it adds 2% to grid demand. 2% of sustainable grid demand growth is huge. It's the same as population growth for essentially six, seven years. And that leads to more transmission, more distribution spending on tops of hundreds or even thousands of new charging stations, which the utilities will obviously be more than happy to own and put into rate base. So those are the two positives there. The risk, of course, is Biden does something to benefit rooftop solar, and that creates a big cost shift from customers with panels, who, who as you imagine are usually rich, more affluent customers, to those without panels. And that is never a good thing since utilities are mostly a fixed cost system. So spreading those fixed costs among fewer and fewer deliveries can boost those bills for those without rooftop solar panels. And then you might get regulators and politicians involved and you never want to see that. Utilities have had tremendous amount of success killing off net metering. Net metering is the ability to sell back your power, your power from your rooftop solar panels to the grid at the retail price of power versus the wholesale price. So I live in Connecticut, as you know, Chris, the retail price of power is eight cents a kilowatt hour, which is $80 a megawatt hour. Under the laws in Connecticut now, I have two years left to install rooftop solar, and then I get a 20-year window to sell all my solar power back to the grid at that whole, at the retail price of power, $80. After that, I move to the wholesale price, which is $30 or $40. 
many states in killing off that metering have lowered it even further. It says you don't go from the retail price to the wholesale price. You go to a real-time price, which at one o'clock on the bright sunny day is next to nothing. So killing off net metering takes the payback period of that $25,000 rooftop solar system from four or five years, i.e. it's a real economic decision, to 20 plus years, i.e. it's something only the uber rich do so they can talk about it at cocktail parties. And to quantify this, when Utah killed off net metering, rooftop solar requests dropped from 5,000 a year to 800. The risk here is Biden does something pro net metering, and that risk is mainly for utility hold co-bonds, which is around one third of the 550 billion utility index. Fair enough. Yeah, we haven't yet installed the panels on our roof and not sure that we will. You've written about, or you know, you've been constructive on clean energy. You've written about clean energy ETFs on the equity side. You know, going go you know earlier summer in June. Can you give us some color on that? Sure. We're tracking five clean energy ETFs. They're up an average of forty uh, percent since June one, and some of them are up you know ninety percent year to date. But just importantly, as their performance is the actual units outstanding, and those are also up forty percent since June one. And we attribute that to Biden announcing his clean energy platform in early July. So a lot of investors say, I need to get involved and the easiest way is a low cost ETF. So they buy those ETFs and then these market makers obviously create more ETF shares. The key is those combined market value of these five largest clean energy ETFs is still only 4 billion, which is not very big relative to the overall investing universe. TAN, TAN, and ICLN are the biggest and we think there's still room to run for all of those under a Biden presidency, uh, especially if the Democrats take the Senate. Thanks, Andy. You were getting close to the end here. And to close it out, can you give our listeners, you, you know, kind of what your what spots that you like in the sector on the stock and bond side? And then, you know, as credit analysts, it's always important to talk about where you think uh, investors should be cautious. Sure, Chris. On the stock side, we like Brookfield Renewables. Specifically, since there's two securities here, we like BEPC, which just IPO'd in July. And we like it not just because it's one of the world's largest renewable stocks. It's got an attractive dividend yield of 3.4%, an achievable dividend growth rate of 5 to 9%. We like it more for technical reasons. All these green energy ETFs I just mentioned earlier couldn't own BEP, which is the Brookfield Renewable Security that's been around for years and years. It's a mirror security of BEPC. They couldn't own BEP because BEP throws off K-1 income for tax purposes, but they can buy BEPC since it throws out ordinary 1099 dividend income. So far, these clean energy ETFs have not bought BEPC since it's just IPO'd in late July. We expect near-term buying from all of them that should do well for BEPC. On the bond side, we like a related security, which is Terraform Power, TERP, which was just acquired by Brookfield Renewables. That deal closed in early August. So TERP has 2028s that are not callable until 2027. As you know very well, call risk is a very big issue for the overall high yield market. So these aren't callable until 2027. They have an OAS of plus 260. So you're giving up 90 bips relative to the double B index. So if you're a double B manager, you might not like it on the surface, but we think this goes to investment grade in two years. So if you're a crossover investor, we think there's significant upside. Brookfield didn't give a guarantee. They did not extend a guarantee to the TERP box. So the agencies kept them a low double B. But the reality is, the assets are fully consolidated and part of the existing BEP asset base. 
there's no ability to walk away from this box like NRG to Degenon or First Energy to First Energy Solutions, or you see all the time when people walk from subsidiaries. These assets are fully intertwined with all the BEP reporting segments. And we all know the Brookfield story is a cost of capital advantage one. So when those 2023s become callable in 2022, it's a no-brainer that Brookfield will do that refi at the BEP level versus the TERP level, and that naturally delevers the TERP box and sends it to IG. And we wouldn't be surprised to see them tender for those bonds ahead of time, although that's not part of the whole thesis. We also like NRG Investor Secured Bonds, which are already investment grade for low triple B investors at similar plus 250 spreads. We like Vistra more than NRG as NRG just pushed back the timing of getting the unsecured part of the cap structure to investment grade to 2021-22 with a big acquisition. We also like the Vistra story over NRG because Vistra controls its own destiny more because they still own coal plants in Texas. So they can shut down those coal plants, which benefits the market and benefits their own gas plants and nuclear plant. We saw that exact scenario happen with Vistra when they retired coal in 1718, and then we had the price breaks in 19, which they cleaned up on. Vistra is also uh, building storage in California, and that obviously has some more room for growth there. On the names to avoid and high yield power, it's just see a pretty big disconnect here. Calpine is the only name running with over five times leverage versus the group at two to three times. And while the peers are aiming for investment grade ratings at the unsecured level, Calpine's new owners are taking all the free cash flows out as dividends. They have no maturities until 2026, so nobody can really stop them from doing this. There's no covenants that stop prevent them from doing it either. So despite that backdrop of two to three more turns of more of leverage and all free cash flows going to equity, their bonds are only 50 bips behind TERP. That should be more like 100, 150 bips if, if we were trading these things. We would also avoid Exelon Gen long bonds as both significant sale and spin risk as combined with an inevitable earnings cliff when those existing hedges expire. They have long bonds yielding four, four and a half percent. And as a reminder, the former PPL energy supply bonds, which were similar to XGen and being an IG rated Genco buried in a diversified utility, those PPL energy supply long bonds are spun to double B and then LBO to single B and are now trading at 48 cents on the dollar. So we just don't think that risk is reflected in XGen long bonds yielding 4%. Finally, if the solar installers rally on a Biden win, we would avoid or even short those names with most utilities pledging to go 100% clean energy and states dialing back the ability to get the retail price of power for rooftop solar. We just don't see the incentive for customers to keep spending $25,000 installing rooftop solar systems on their own homes. Well, thanks, Andy. I think we'll probably be having this discussion for, for some time to come. It's a big election issue, big economic issue, and big uh, social issue as well. So thank you, Andy. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Thank you to our listeners. As always, you can find our research on our website, creditsites.com. Or if you are not a subscriber, please contact us at sales at creditsites.com. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or produced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information complained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. Received by the listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.